0: Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and today's episode is another chef-timony on the road. My fiancé and I spent the Canadian Thanksgiving long weekend in New York City. I absolutely love New York. We saw some great art, we heard some great jazz, ate some great food, and I got to interview one very fascinating New York chef. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Chef Demoni. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Coming up on today's episode is my talk with Chef Jenny Dorsey. It was a real pleasure to speak with this accomplished and innovative chef. Chef Jenny covers a lot of ground. She has a background in business. She's lived on both coasts of the U.S. She writes, speaks, consults, hosts a podcast of her own, and she experiments with augmented and virtual reality. And that's all on top of being a very busy chef. While her work and creativity revolve around being a chef, a culinary experience is not only about food for Jenny. Storytelling is very important to this chef, too. Born in Shanghai, Jenny experienced what she calls lunchbox shame when growing up in the U.S., being teased for bringing food to school that was unusual to the other students. Now, as an accomplished chef, Jenny creates dinners not just to serve great food to her guests, but to challenge their thinking, too going so far as intentionally making her guests uncomfortable. Check out Chef's article in the online magazine, Narratively, called Yes, This Meal is Supposed to Make You Uncomfortable. I'll put a link to the article in the show notes, and toward the end of our interview, Chef and I talk about what she calls the most personal project she has created since becoming a chef, a culinary and virtual reality experience called Asian in America, which Jenny debuted in New York in August and is now taking on the road. And while she creates events and meals you simply won't find anywhere else, Chef Jenny is also down-to-earth. I loved how honest and direct she was during our interview, and I think that carries through in everything this chef does. As an example, on the whole question of Michelin stars for restaurants and people making the effort to go to a place just because it has some stars, Chef had this to say.
1: And then you have the whole Michelin situation, which I have very, I mean, I think people forget that Michelin is a tire company and they have one goal, which is to make you drive more to go to restaurants. But
0: anyway, I also felt some common ground with Jenny when she talked about making a shift away from the world of management consulting to what she found when she started looking into the culinary world. Don't get me wrong, many of my closest friends, the ones I turn to when I need help or when I want to share joy, are lawyers, the ones I've met in the legal part of my career. Kitchens just offer a different environment for making friends than offices do. So here's what Chef Jenny had to say talking about one memorable experience she had in culinary school.
1: I remember one day in culinary school, one of my classmates, Carlos, he was like, you know, you're a crazy, freaky micromanager. And I was like, no, I'm not. He's like, you are, but we still love you.
0: (laughs) And I had to ask Jenny for her take on another topic Chef Timoni has looked at in the past, the willingness of younger cooks to put in the long hours. And I loved Jenny's response.
1: I mean, I think that's totally bullshit. I think millennials work a lot harder and a lot smarter than their old generation. And I think that what the former generation really doesn't like is that millennials will always find a way to do it better
0: and faster instead of just trudging along and always using the same rules as before. As you'll hear in our interview, Chef also has thoughts on how to make jobs in the culinary industry more realistic economically. And while I've complained a lot about the problem of low pay for cooks and how it's forcing many to leave the industry, Jenny has some concrete thoughts Thoughts on how to fix the system and on who needs to take the first steps. So join me now in New York City for my talk with Chef Jenny Dorsey. I am super excited to be here in New York City and super, super excited to be talking to a New York City chef, Chef Jenny Dorsey. First of all, chef, thank you for making the time. Thanks for being on Chef Chefdemoni.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So chef, entrepreneur, author, Speaker, artist, I really found it difficult trying to figure out (laughs) what I should first ask you on this interview, but maybe I'll start with a quote, and this is one of several that I found really interesting in an article you published recently, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. The article is called, Yes, This Meal is Supposed to Make You Uncomfortable, and I think it gets at a whole bunch of things, not least your evolution as a chef and what you're looking to achieve with your food, but it seems to me it goes well beyond food too. Anyway, here's the quote. When Epicurus announced Seltus was cool, yeah. I remember breathing a sigh of relief. Finally, someone saw the greatness of this juicy stock I frequently served in gentle poached form. Dan Barber credited his own farmer with finding the vegetable, and I nodded along. Even if he usurped our stories, at least I could be part of one. So, Chef, can you please tell the listeners about that quote, about that realization, what you're getting at there?
1: Yeah, of course. So for those who aren't familiar, saltus is also known as asparagus lettuce, which I actually think is a pretty good uh, description of what it tastes like. It tastes kind of like a watered-down version of asparagus, but very crunchy, like a raw asparagus, but the juiciness of a lettuce. And it's something that is prized in Chinese cooking because it, when cooked, it retains its crunch. So it's very nice in stir-fries, or I mean, it's very nice in any form because it's very juicy and it gives you that kind of like wow Mouth watering resistance when you're eating. So, again, it's been used for centuries, I'm sure, as a Chinese staple, but it didn't really start getting popular and the states didn't really get noticed until a few years ago when all of a sudden Epicurus was mentioning this and Dan Barber served it at Stone Barns. And I think one of the things that we're finally starting to realize in the food industry is there's food and food culture that exists outside of our bubble in the United States for forever, but until some once that looks familiar to us, us being usually a white majority, we don't accept it or we don't think it's important or we don't listen.
0: I asked Jenny how it was sitting for her, this growing popularity of traditional foods from her heritage, but the fact that the popularity has been growing in large part because of promotion by people who don't share that heritage.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely still kind of exploring how I feel about this because I feel many different things, different days. <laughs> sure. And I would say... Part of it is there's not that much I can do about what Dan Barber has said or for Thai people, what Andy Ricker has said about their food and not all of it is bad. It's not like they're bashing their food. So I guess that's a good thing, right? Dan Barber has said, this is very cool. Andy Ricker has always said that he loves Northern Thai cuisine and, and we can go on about Rick Bayless and yada, yada, yada. So in one aspect of that, it's like, you know, you have to give credit where credit is due, regardless of how kind of perhaps the ill-advised way that these ingredients or these cuisines has come to light, they have come to light and now they're here. But I think it's also very important that now that we have captured a bigger you know, market share, or market attention in the food world, it's important to really educate people on the right things that they know where their food is coming from, where the history of the food is, and the people that the food really belongs to at the beginning. I mean, I don't think any cuisine can't adapt or can't change for the future. And I think people also get stuff on that. I definitely think there's room for people of all ethnicities and all types of food, but that doesn't mean you get to just disregard everything that happened in the past as well.
0: Chef, can you talk about then your evolution in the kinds of dishes you've created? And this goes hand-in-hand with what we've just been discussing. And I think about another narratively quote. I think the words you used were manicured food. Yes, And I've done some work in fine dining as well, and it's got its goods and its bads, but maybe tell the listeners about that experience. Let's start with that, with fine dining, and then the shift from there to the types of events that you're putting on now.
1: I always knew that I wanted to be in fine dining. I mean, I was kind of that person in culinary school that everyone made fun of because they were like, oh, you know, Jenny's going to go work at a fancy restaurant. So I don't have any hard Feelings per se about the kind of food that I served at my dining. I guess some hard feelings, but like I love that kind of food. I like plated cuisine. My food is fancy and it requires tweezers, and I'm not shy to say that. You know, sure. the only thing I tell my prep and uh, sous chefs to bring with me on event days is tweezers. <laughs> so I think that that kind of like look of the food really appealed to me, and I thought. When I went to fine dining, you know, because the food was so nice and it was so pretty and everyone was paying so much money for it that like I could kind of really paint this illusion of like who I was. You know, I wanted my food to be important too. I kind of wanted what to like live vicariously through that like fancy food. And I feel like when I went into fine dining, I didn't realize how much of it, yeah, was manicured. Sure, I think all my food is manicured too, but I think it wants to show more emotion than realistically the kind of people coming to fine dining restaurants will allow. You know, the fine dining experience is really dictated by the guest. If the guest wants to be an asshole, he gets to be an asshole and still have a great meal. That's just the reality of it. If they're celebrating something on a splurge, like, you know, you want to make sure that you have your $2,000 bottle of wine that they can splurge on. And that's really the driving force of fine dining. And then you have the whole Michelin situation which i have very i mean i think people forget that Michelin is a tire company right. <laughs> and they have one goal which is to make you drive more to go to restaurants but anyway so I think it was just this kind of like when I went in there I realized a lot of it is an illusion a lot of it is like smoke and mirrors a lot of it is just trying to appease the guest instead of really trying to let the chef create in this kind of like unadulterated way and that's what I was really looking for just because the chefs are able to come in a high price point doesn't mean that it doesn't come with a lot of strings attached I don't really know if that's what I wanted to do and I kind of was at this weird crux where I felt like this is the kind of food that I wanted to make but but this is not the message that I wanted to send with my food, and I didn't know how to get the two together in a way that made sense to me and also showed who I was as an artist. And so, I think in the last year, I've been really able to marry those two things a lot better. Being able to explore that means of how do you actually make people uncomfortable using the food? The food is still beautiful and tastes pretty good, but like. How do you add this like feeling of bittersweet? How do you add actual emotions to the food that isn't all like, Oh my God, we're so happy and we're so elegant. And look at us. We're wearing fancy dresses that we can't breathe in and all that stuff. Like, how do we actually get people to sit down and be like, wow, you know, I also had a lunchbox moment where I was ashamed of what I was eating. I also felt like my culture's cuisine didn't matter in the context of, you know, whatever workplace that I worked in and having those conversations instead when they're eating
0: next i asked jenny about shifting awareness in the food sector about whether she's noticing change
1: i live in a bubble i know that it's not just new york but in my own like food bubble. When I talk to people, you know, they're all very like, yes, this is how I feel about food. I host a show on a heritage radio. And like the people that we all bring on have these like similar feelings about food and the hierarchies and all of that stuff. So I can talk to those people all day. But then many times I find when I step out of that zone to go do something else, for instance, I did like a press event for a client of mine at an unnamed large publication. <laughs> and literally every single person that showed up there, like had no idea what I was cooking. I wasn't even cooking re- anything very complicated. I was cooking ajidashi tofu. And everyone's like, what is this? Ew, it's so gross. I hate tofu. And it's like, wow, are we in 2006? <laughs> but I mean, it just takes a really long time for real change to happen. So I think we're really still at the beginning of that wave. And I like, hope that I'm contributing to a
0: Right. Do you have a frustration, I will state up front, that I do with, I guess, the dining crowd? And it's more around social media. I did an episode a couple of shows back where I asked guests on the show about being a regular at a restaurant and what value that brought to them. Mm -hmm. And what I was trying to get at was the joy of not following social media for restaurant recommendations and not winding up at packed places just because they tend to be trendy or they've got pictures that are, you know, going viral on Instagram. So, Do you share that frustration and how do you keep the faith in trying to work through that? Is it individual connections with diners who may have had an aha moment with you that keeps you going? What is it that keeps you using your voice in this way?
1: I think social media wise, it's definitely a double-edged sword. I use social as a way to promote myself and I've met some really great people and got some interesting jobs off social as well, sure. so I can't fault it too much, but I do think that the way we tend to consume food media on social is a disaster. Mm-hmm. All of it is really fake from restaurants or from magazines or from whatever. And I will totally say that I contribute to that because I style those things like shoot those things like I'm part of that problem as well. And I don't know how to fix it. Because right now people are so saturated with that kind of content that they reject anything that really looks a lot more real. Like, I think for my particular brand, I try my best to keep things really, really unstyled. It's really just a play and like a simple backdrop of sorts. But I know what kind of content people really like and what is getting like the millions of clicks and the kind of stuff that, you know, like Tasty is posting and people are paying money to create. If you look at what is really trending on your search page, you know, it's a lot of like food porn, like the egg yolk and the You get what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a problem because like we're kind of stuck in this rut. Like I've seen all these things recently where people are like, "This is just disgusting. Like, why would you post this?" Yet there's so many other people who like it. That what are the media outlets supposed to do? They make their money on clicks and advertising. It's all about clicks for them. They don't get to have a conscience because they're just trying to make money. I guess we could talk about how capitalism works, sure. (laughs) But like you know, that's like their job, right? Yeah. So I don't know where to go. I think it's really hard to be an independent voice in food right now, because everyone is so used to seeing only a particular kind of content, though, I think the only way to like, keep the faith for me has been to try and find my own voice that still kind of matches within it's like, I post professional looking photos that aren't too styled. And if you see my Instagram, my captions are like, very, very long. They're like little blogs, essentially. Yes. And I think that's my way of saying, like, you know, I have to be on some sort of social. platform, but that doesn't mean I'm just going to waste time on this platform. I can still put together a cohesive and an intellectual conversation here with other people. And I've had very interesting and intellectual conversations with people on Instagram. So showing others that you can use the medium in a different way, instead of being like the 150th blogger who posts like a beautiful photo of food. And is like, I don't know what to caption this, you know,
0: After our talk on social media, I asked Jenny about her road to New York. I knew from some of her posts that Chef was born in Shanghai and that she lived and went to college in Seattle before coming to New York for work. And at that point, Jenny nearly went to business school to continue her career in management consulting before making the decision to step into the culinary world.
1: After two years of working in New York, I was really burned out. Yeah. So I didn't know what to do with myself. So I applied to business school, at Columbia Business School, and I got an early decision. So early decision, you would get in like almost a year before school starts. Mm -hmm. So I essentially had like nine months, eight, ten months before the start of the school year at Columbia. So I didn't even really think about it. I just, I decided to go to culinary school. And at the time I didn't think I was going to pursue the food field. I really thought like I was going to go to culinary school. It's going to be fun. And then I'm going to go to Columbia and then I'm going to go and like go back into, I came from management consulting. So I was like, I'll just go back to management consulting. Really, you know, how most of it works is like you come from a, okay, management consulting shop. I was at Accenture and I was like, I'll go to, Columbia, and then I'll go into one of the top three, being BCG or McKinsey, and they'll pay off my loans, and then I'll just suffer for the rest of my life while making a lot of money. Right. And so I went to culinary school, I made a terrible financial decision, I literally put everything down on my credit card, which like, no, nobody should ever do that. Right. I like put all my savings down and then put the rest on my credit card. I mean, it was so stupid. And I was a finance major, too. So I was just like, it was an absurdly bad financial decision.
0: Right.
1: And I graduated from culinary school a few days before I started at Columbia, when into columbia and was like wow this is really not where i want to be this is not what i want to do and this is not who i am anymore
0: was it culinary school or was it just a realization that the consulting world was not where you wanted to be anymore
1: i think the big thing was that yes i definitely didn't want to go back into consulting because it was just boring Mm -hmm. but i think it was really the people at culinary school i mean culinary school i have mixed feelings about in terms of how much it costs and what they're really teaching you and also some of the bad things that they're teaching you right but at the same time the people that I met at Colony school, because I was in evening program, I was with all these other career changers. And I think I really realized people there were so different from me. These were people I would never have probably been friends with in my regular life because, you know, they didn't have like fancy degrees or a fancy job or anything. And, you know, they were just trying to like, you know, they had these different lives that had been hard, and they were kind of trying to figure it out. And for a while, I was like, oh, I have nothing in common with these people. But like over the duration of nine months, I really got to know them and be like, wow, I feel like I'm looking for the wrong traits in people that I'm friends with Mm. and I think that was a big turning point for me in realizing like you know you are as good as the people you surround yourself with and I was surrounded by all these flashy people doing like stupid shit that they were really proud of all the time for like contributing absolutely nothing to the world and I didn't want to be around those people anymore but I felt like compelled to put on this front like oh yeah look I'm friends with this person or whatever Mm -hmm. instead of actually looking for people who were going to take care of me who love me who you know I remember One day in culinary school, one of my classmates, Carlos, he was like, you know, you're a crazy, freaky micromanager. And I was like, no, I'm not. He's like, you are, but we still love you. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, no, I'm not a micromanager, but I mean, I really am. But like, that was the kind of interaction that I was like, wow, like, I didn't get that. Or I didn't really understand what it felt like to have that kind of friendship before. And I think culinary school taught me a lot about who I wanted to surround myself with
0: have you noticed having more honest experiences or better experiences? That has been my reality. The fancy lunches and fancy dinners, they were fine. I enjoyed them, but I have way more fun in the back of house, as I was saying, standing next to the dish pit and wolfing down a leftover piece of prep when you have two seconds, as opposed to sitting through an eight course plated meal with clients trying to get their business.
1: Yeah, I think there's just like kind of a rawness, for sure, as you said. But also, you get to know people, you know, when you're so tired in the kitchen, when you've been working these 14 hour shifts, you don't have time to put pretenses like what you see is really what you get that is the kind of person they are and sometimes people are really shitty people and you're like wow i see like if this is how you handle stress like you're kind of a mm. but sometimes people are you know They're just who they are, and, like, there's parts that you think might be weird or you don't like, but, like, Mm -hmm. for the most part, you're like, wow, like, I really understand you at some fundamental level that I think many other people might not. And I think in the corporate work environment, you don't really know your colleagues. Everyone's kind of buttoned up. Everyone's sending emails with exclamation marks on it. Like, you don't really know how they feel about you, but in the kitchen, like, you know if someone doesn't like you, or you know if someone does like you. Like, it's all pretty obvious. (laughs)
0: You know what just came to mind when you talk about working, you know, like a 13-hour shift is years ago, I was training for a marathon with some friends. And it was really interesting because as we got into our longer and longer training runs and we'd be out there for three and four hours. So A, you've had way too much time together. So you're through all of the small talk you could ever possibly get through. And then B, you're exhausted. So your defenses are down. So holy moly, did I get to know these people well? (laughs) Yeah. We had the most honest conversations and I think kitchens do that too.
1: Yes, I agree. I mean, you're together so much of every day that you kind of just You get to know all these random things about them or it's kind of like when I come home to my husband, I tell him all these stupid things that happened to me today that like he wouldn't care if he weren't my husband. Like, oh, I saw this dog today and it looked really funny. And he's like, haha, like he doesn't even know what I'm talking about. Right. But I think you hear that in kitchens.
0: We've talked about working hard, both kitchens and the corporate side, do you notice anything around work ethic with younger cooks these days, younger chefs?
1: I mean, I think this is a hot topic, like people always like to say that.
0: Yeah, about the dreaded millennials.
1: I mean, I think that's totally bullshit. I think millennials work a lot harder and a lot smarter than their old generation. And I think that what the former generation really doesn't like is that millennials will always find a way to do it better and faster instead of just trudging along and always using the same rules as before. And if you're a chef that's been working the same way for the last 40 years, you you hate that of course you hate having your ego challenged. you hate having your you know expertise challenged but like before we had computers people weren't like you know what will be great a computer yeah you know people don't know what's great until that thing happens and I think that's what's happening in dining and kitchens all around the world is like younger chefs are saying you we could do it like this we could do it like this there's so many more technologies out there we didn't have roto vapes like five years ago I mean maybe we did but nobody was using them right yeah so we can't distill flavor compounds the way we can today or we didn't have like molecular things before like 2000 and so we weren't making like agar gel sheets and spherical olives before then too and now for some reason that's heralded as something amazing but when a younger person is like oh we could actually make this more efficient or and I think people are starting to realize that because we have a limited amount of people who want to just suffer and make ten dollars an hour now right so we have less people in the kitchen so it is important to work more if efficiently than before. We don't have the same setup unless you're a very, very like special kitchen where you have 30 stages. Mm -hmm. And sure, I've worked in kitchens with 30 stages where you could work as inefficiently as possible and still get the work done. But most kitchens can't work like that. Maybe you used to do things in five steps, but actually you could do them in three. And the end result is the same. But it is hard to hear that as a leader. And I think especially with males in leadership roles from the past, you're taught that leadership means that you're never questioned you know, you basically rule by fear, especially in restaurant kitchens. Mm -hmm. And I think Finally, that's starting to come to a head that that is not proper leadership. That's also not being a man. And people are starting to respect and understand that there's a better way to move forward with efficiency, with operations, with, you know, like pure innovation. And that means that you have to reject some of the stuff from the past. I'm a millennial, so I'm obviously biased. Sure. But I think millennials are going to change the world. So everyone else is just along for the ride.
0: Along for the ride. That's certainly true and only becoming truer, right, as time goes on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think in both careers that I know in law and in cooking, I think there's been this weird kind of badge of honor to having suffered.
1: Yes, hazing.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, 30 years ago, I went through it. And so you're going to go through it now. Correct. So I think that is super refreshing that people are rejecting that. And what do you think about because millennial or otherwise, there are just people out there who don't want to work very hard in every generation, I think it is, I'd be curious for your thoughts on this, that the kitchen is a pretty magical sorting mechanism for that. Yes. In other words, even if you're working efficiently, you still got to work hard.
1: Yes. Being a millionaire is definitely no excuse to be lazy. And I have definitely fired many people from being just unmotivated. And I think, you know, the hard thing is like, I can't tell sometimes if people are actually like lazy, like physically lazy and intellectually lazy, or if they just have no sense of urgency. But I think the reality is in the kitchen it doesn't matter which camp you fall into. If you are one or the other, like you need to leave. I can't have you like, cutting radishes in quarters and have you take 20 minutes to do that. If you have like one pound of radishes, like you need to do that faster. I can only tell you to do it faster so many times before I'm like, okay, you're not coming back tomorrow. Right. And who knows why they were like that. Maybe they were having a bad day, but you don't get to have a bad day in the kitchen. That is also one of the problems in the food industry is that it's so demanding. It's so hard. And like, you don't get a lot of days off. And I think that's another conversation we can have on how we should be changing the culture of the food industry to be a little bit more work-life balance friendly and just the, you know, overall mental health more friendly. But right now, like you're part of a team and if you can't work as fast as everyone else, then you need to get out.
0: Are things changing in New York at all on this point you raised about work-life balance? And I remember listening to, I think it was a Freakonomics podcast where they were interviewing Danny Meyer from Union Square Hospitality. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about one of his restaurants, and he would have the the wherewithal to do this, where they did an experiment of going all in, so gratuity included, and then changing the distribution of the money among the staff so that the back of house was getting more than traditionally they do. Yep. But the overall challenge they were addressing was it was basically impossible to be a cook in New York because you'd have to live, you know, I don't know what, four hours away to be able to afford an apartment. Yep. Is that getting any better?
1: I mean, I'm sad to report that they actually went back and they're going back to a tipping situation. Oh, yeah, I really thought that that would stick, especially because Danny Meyer is such an influential person in the food scene. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that did not seem to work well with the consumers. And I think a lot of that is consumer education problems, like people don't actually understand how expensive it is to not even run a restaurant, but to like put food on the table the only time people seem to really understand that is like when you go to a restaurant from chef's table and you see this beautiful video of people like putting together your meal with tweezers (laughs) (laughs) but like people understand like oh well I got two eggs at the diner like why did I have to pay x for that so I think that's partially the problem and I I think that we've kind of gotten stuck in a cycle where we expect our food to be a certain price point. And so there is no wiggle room for cooks to make more money, especially because alongside that, we only seem to expect and value the front of house staff. We'll tip them, but we've never tipped cooks historically. So it's very hard to change the public persona and the public you know, viewpoint on that. And so my personal stance on it is like, instead of restaurants asking for their consumers to magically change their minds overnight because they're not going to right. i think it's one thing to ask a consumer who's very very wealthy and has tons of discretionary income to toss a couple 20s for the back of house versus that person who's going to the diner and asking them to tip five more dollars for the back of house like that's gonna be a very difficult ask. I think it's really on the restaurants themselves, especially those in the fast casual space and the kind of just like mid tier space, Mm -hmm. just to raise the salaries of their back of house staff and take the hit. If they really wanted to do something, like the restaurants have to take the hit first, but no one's willing to stick their neck out because capitalism. So like, I don't know where to go with that. You know, I can say from my end, what I've done is that I pay all my back of house and front of house the same, and it's a very high hourly rate. Okay. So then, everyone is equal, and then we don't take tips. But we also only host pop up events, and we barely, you know, make any money because I run everything through my nonprofit. So we're not trying to make any money. Right. But like, that's not how most restaurants work. Right. I understand that it's a difficult financial decision. So at some point, it's kind of like you're looking to those restaurants that have tons of millions of dollars in their bank and waiting for them to be the leader in this situation and they're not doing it. So like, How can you ask someone who's barely scraping by to do it?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Because when you're saying the move has to come from the restaurants, the first thought that went through my mind was, and I was thinking of smaller independent restaurants, is, you know, as soon as they do that, of course, their pricing is going to have to move. And it's such a price sensitive market that they might be, you know, signing their own death warrant. Yep. So, yeah, I think you're right. It has to come from restaurants that currently have the capacity to do it.
1: Yep, I agree.
0: On happier topics, and just a few final questions, because I know you're busy, so I want you to be able to get on with your day, but can you tell the listeners about your pop-up, about Wednesday? Yeah. You call it Wednesdays, plural? Wednesdays. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I started Wednesdays with my husband, who's a mixologist, five years ago, January of 2014, so it's kind of nuts, but our whole concept is how do you get people to connect on a deeper level? How do you cut through the bullshit and actually talk about things that matter. I'm an introvert. I'm an extroverted introvert, I think, so I can handle like social situations. But like, whenever people start talking about the subway or the weather, like I feel my eyes rolling so far into the back of my head. (laughs) I just like, you know, I don't get it. Because sometimes people say like, oh, I don't want to talk about personal topics. But at the same time, does that mean you want to spend the majority of your life talking about like, stupid topics? I mean, that doesn't even make sense to me. What
0: else is there? Right?
1: (laughs) Like, what? yeah, what else is there? I don't want to talk about the Kardashians. Like, are you happy talking about the Kardashians? So how do you create the safe space for like-minded people to kind of get together and talk and then also have really good food and drink? That was our entire idea, we had no idea what we were doing. So we just invited some of our friends over essentially for a dinner party and I cooked and he made drinks and that was that. And the first dinner was a disaster because everything came out like at weird times and the drinks were really crazy and strong because he was just getting started and (laughs) you know, all that stuff. But I think as we've gone through the years, it's been a fascinating psychology experiment of learning how people interact in groups, who ends up dominating conversation, how do you try to even that playing field by making sure both extroverts and introverts feel comfortable in the space. Mm -hmm. We definitely had a lot of pitfalls. We just had dinners where people didn't talk or people weren't engaged. Or we had, you know, one or two people who just really sucked the air out of the room. And we really believe in a democratic process. So we don't curate the people at all. But instead, what we started doing is in order to make sure that people know that we're serious we ask them a bunch of questions before they even show up so questions like what's your biggest failure and how has that motivated you? And if you don't answer it, you don't get a ticket. And if you answer it really crappily, you don't get a ticket either.
0: Right, good for you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, there's no bad answer. The only bad answer is I've never failed at all in which you're just a giant asshole. So I don't want you to come. So like, I think that's been a good way of showing people that we're serious. But even still, when people come, it's like, it's really a crapshoot. What's going to happen that night? And it's really, really nerve wracking to see kind of the different types of people who are interacting and sometimes you see just magic happen at a table where they have these things to talk about. I mean we do a lot of other things too where we replace name cards with personal information so people get to know each other and all that stuff but like you can only do so much everybody says like oh we build community at a table and I think we actually really try hard to do that you can't just see people and hope magic happens you really have to like make their experience give them the tools but at the end of the day they're adults like you can't force them to hold hands and sing together you know right so one of the things that we started doing with my Wednesday sister company, Studio Atal, which is my nonprofit, is we started incorporating some virtual reality into that. Mm -hmm. And what I found with virtual reality is we pair some of the dishes with a virtual reality component. So with my last exhibit event, it's called Asian in America, and it talks about the Asian American identity through food, VR, and poetry, is that three of the courses out of six courses were paired with VR, and it was alternating. So every 20 minutes or so, people would would go into VR and they would get a break. So for introverts like me, it was like this little restorative niche that was built into the meal. So you could interact with the art You know quietly you can interact it by yourself you can opine and make your opinions and have like a solitary experience and then when you come out of the vr we found that people were a lot more engaged and people felt you know renewed and they wanted to talk to the people they were sitting with at the table on how they felt and what they thought but at the same time it's not like we were all watching a movie together like you got to get this like individual experience that, that you could share your opinion on versus like having one or two people kind of like dominate how everybody was feeling.
0: Amazing. So you're really taking steps to draw people out of themselves and to shake up the conversation. What are the reactions that you're getting from people?
1: I think it varies depending on what kind of event we're hosting. So Asian in America is a pretty personal, very like, touchy event. It's a very delicate topic, right? And I wouldn't say that most people we have are actually Asian American, we had a good mix, maybe 40% Asian Americans, 60% allies. And people were like very, very, very thoughtful. And people were asking really good questions, I think more so than that in some of the other dinners we had, because a some people couldn't speak personally to the experience. But many times, any minority usually has had some sort of similar experience. So people were like, out there sharing these kind of scary or sad or vulnerable experiences of their life. So, you know, it would be a bad time for someone else at the table to interrupt them or to not listen or to not ask a good question like there's also a little bit of that social expectation there that if someone is opening up like you you sit down you listen to them and be polite and be respectful yes so you definitely saw that dynamic play out but I think really incorporating the VR was really key in getting people to actually feel more comfortable even though yes they're emotionally uncomfortable dealing with some of these topics but I felt like just for their personality for that kind of like introvert personality, like they felt more at ease with how the meal was progressing. Like I felt that when I looked out from the kitchen, I felt the energy was very, very stable. The entire dinner, which is like three hours long, versus many dinners, I can feel the energy start to wane and people just are tired and want to go home because they're tired of sitting with these random ass people at their table. Right. And they just want to leave. And you don't want people to feel that at the end of the night. You know what I mean? You really want people to be like, wow, I sat next to a fascinating person. I really got to learn their story. That doesn't mean they become best friends, but they feel like their lives were enriched because of it.
0: Can you pick one instance of a piece of virtual reality or augmented reality from Asian in America and just describe what that experience was like for the listeners.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I'll just talk about augmented reality, virtual reality and the difference really quick. So augmented reality is anyone's played like Pokemon Go (laughs) recently. Right? Yes. That's like augmented reality. So you can actually see the real world, but you see additional visuals on top of it. And right now that's mostly through your phone, but they also have you know, augmented reality glasses that you can wear. Right now they're very expensive, so nobody has them. Right. <laughs> but that is the idea for the future. Virtual reality is a completely enclosed space. So you're watching, you know, visuals in a like a headset, but you're completely like closed off from the rest of the world. So for Asian America, the VR experience is that like, there's three courses that are paired with VR. And so when people actually enter the headset, they see what they're about to eat, like reconstructed using a platform called Tilt Brush, which is a virtual reality. Painting platform. So I had a VR artist actually paint the process of making that dish using like a stroke by stroke like recreation. So that let's say there's pork belly, you see her paint the pork belly. And then you see the pork belly actually cut into small pieces. And then you see it being sauteed. You see all of that, like just unfold in front of you and you have to do a little bit, you have to move your body, it forms a circle around you. So you kind of are like looking and moving a little bit with the experience. So because there's so much symbolism in every ingredient and cooking technique I use, there's also audio narration in the VR. So that as you're watching this stroke by stroke VR unfold, you're also listening to my audio narration kind of explaining what it is that you're watching so for instance there's Seltuse in one of the dishes and so I'm talking about Dan Barber and the feeling of like oh my demand for Seltuse wasn't good enough but now you know everyone else's demand. Or uh, there's garlic chives and garlic chives are now seen as this like secret to Chinese cooking. But for a long time, if you've eaten it before, like you cook something with garlic chives and keep it in the fridge, it kind of smells like farts. And like I used to get made fun of all the time for bringing like garlic chive dumplings. And so like kind of talking about all of these things, as people are also watching that process. So the narration is timed alongside the ingredients so that it fits. The whole VR experience is about two and a half minutes each. So they'll be in VR for two and a half minutes. And when they take off the headset, the food is in front of them.
0: Amazing, wow. So no doubt that would give people, introvert or not, just a ton to talk about.
1: Yes, there's just a lot to unpack. And I like to think that everybody unpacks all of it. You know, I think people start talking about one thing and then it naturally leads to something else, which is good.
0: Final couple of questions. I want my listeners to know where to be able to find you. So the two spaces that come to mind are Instagram and your podcast, Why Food on Heritage Radio Network. So perhaps you could just give us a quick overview of those.
1: Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at at Chef Jenny Dorsey. That's all my Actually, social handles so you can find me on Facebook and Twitter as well. But I'm definitely the most active on Instagram. My personal website is jennydorsey.co, so not .com. There's another Jenny Dorsey that owns jennydorsey.com, and she just redirects it to her LinkedIn page, which makes me mad. Ah. I should email her and try to buy it from her. But anyway, that's a different story. Okay. And then my podcast is Why Food Podcast on Heritage Radio Network. So if you go to heritageradionetwork.org, you will find it
0: fantastic. Well, listen, Chef, thank you so much for taking the time. So thank you. And thanks for being on Chef Timoney.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And that brings this first New York episode of Chef Timoney to a close. Big thanks to Chef Jenny Dorsey for taking the time to be on the show. If like me, you want to keep up with what Chef is doing, make sure to follow her. She's at Chef Jenny Dorsey, D-O-R-S-E-Y on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And check out her website at JennyDorsey.co. Oh and I want to say thanks to a chefdomony listener Allison, a food enthusiast who lives in the interior of British Columbia in the Okanagan Valley. I connected with Allison through our mutual friend Janine and Allison and I had a great talk about volunteering in professional kitchens to develop cooking skills. When we spoke, Allison was heading out later the same day for her first shift as a volunteer with a restaurant team. I'm going to be in the Okanagan later this month and I'm hoping to catch up with Allison to hear how it went. As always, thanks to you for joining me here for the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'd love to hear from you if you have a question for the show or a suggestion for a chef or a lawyer you'd like to hear interviewed. Please get in touch. You can message me on Instagram or Facebook or send me an email to graham at com. I'm Graham McLennan, and I look forward to seeing you next time right here on Chefdemoney.